Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. In the summer, Facebook said it wanted to launch its own version of money called Libra. That caught everyone's attention, and Facebook's idea didn't get a warm reception. It's been slated by regulators, politicians, and almost everyone. But what are Facebook's chances of winning in the race for payments technology? That's a very difficult question to answer. It's a very complex topic. But one of the best people I know to talk about it is Hugh Van Steenis, who's a banker and former advisor to the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney. Hugh, thank you very much for joining the New Money Review podcast. My pleasure. It's been great to catch up. Um, I, I, I know you've been looking over the last uh, year or two before you joined UBS, you were at the Bank of England looking at the future of finance. And I know you've recently been at the IMF annual meetings in, uh, in, in the US. Uh, it's been a big year in terms of payments and digitalization of finance. Uh, I wonder what the key takeaways were from your IMF meetings, what you thought the key uh, discussion points were. Well, look, thanks for having me on the, uh, on your, on the programme. I mean, I think um, uh, in, in some ways um, Libra has set the hairs running. Uh, I think that it's uh, made uh, the policy world wake up and think about um, is the current payment system as efficient as it could be? And if not, you know, whose responsibility is it? And I think in particular in the area of, say, cross-border payments, there are some great innovations ongoing, and there's some, some great you know, companies who are trying to reduce the friction across border, but maybe the policy community has underestimated its role that it can play in, in whether it's fostering standards. But the other challenge is, um, you know, is, is, is stablecoin a thing? That's a big debate for the policy world. And look, as we all know, uh, it's natural for central banks only want to use technology which is battle-tested. And for the moment, they don't feel they're there yet. But I think the, uh, the vanguard is now a bit closer than they probably thought it was a year ago. And I think that challenge of, well, is this, a, is this something we need to deal with in the next two to three years has shot up the agenda. So the Facebook's Libra project has, has brought this home to central banks and policymakers that they need to be on top of this particular topic? Well, I, I, sorry, look, I, I think, as you know, payments is, varies enormously from country to country, even within, let's say, sit the, uh, even between, let's say, say, Germany and Holland, which are next door to each other, the use of um, electronic payments is radically different. And also, who wins? Is it, is, it, is it a big tech firm, like in China, or is it the banks, like in Sweden, varies enormously. So uh, let's be, first things first, there's a huge amount of knowledge of this space. And then second, for the investment, investment world, We've known the payments was hot for some time. I mean, like one, one of the facts I like to, 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 to use is that the value of Amex, PayPal, MasterCard and Visa has rallied more than just the fangs. So this has been, so the investment community knows that payments has been really red hot as we're all moving online and obviously each firm wants to be, you know, propel itself forward. So I, I don't want to say that it's suddenly opened their eyes, but I think what Libra did was in a way it brought sort of four different issues together in one. So uh, the tokenization of money, you know, is, is, the, is, a, is this a good or a bad, sorry, how can this be used to reduce friction in the system? Second, uh, should payment be done on the bank rails, the credit card rails, or a completely new set of rails like we see in China? And of course, Libra was a new set of rails. You know, thirdly, um, the wallet, who should control the wallets? Is it big tech? Is it telcos? Is it banks? Uh, and then lastly, the data. Who controls the data and all the ecosystem goes around it? And Libra's moonshot was so audacious, it was a token and a new set of rails and a new wallet and the data all in one. And so I think that's why it captured the attention uh, of the community. And then, you know, 
each country's got its own challenges on each of those four things. You know, every, every central bank's got a blockchain, you know, um, pillar, pilot. Whether they're working or whether they're being pushed forward hard is maybe a different matter. Thank you for explaining that so clearly. Could we unpick those points? So let's start with tokenization. What, what are the benefits? Is it just a reduction of settlement risk throughout the system if you tokenize a currency? What are the key benefits for the users of the payment system? Um, well, I think it. I think it depends on on the on the system you're in. So uh, um, the idea is. So I, let's face it. Let's take a step back. What, what I really want to think of is: Can we create a payment system which is frictionless, fraudless, and trusted? You know, because let's face it, payment should be almost zero cost as, as time goes by. Um, the potential benefit of tokenization is it could be more secure, so it could be more trusted. Um, if it's got the information about the uh, 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 the payee and the payer embedded in the payment, it could make it more efficient because the data exchange could be ever better, and it could be much and it could be fast. So at one level, tokenization is really about um, the encryption and the and the data coming together. Um, at one level, I'm actually a little bit neutral about what's the best way to do it. I mean, because at one level, you could say tokenization is nothing new. When you know we use our Visa cards. They actually tokenize the payment. It just happens they don't use blockchain tokenization, and so uh, I think the encrypt. So, so I think the challenge here is, with the advances in technology, is there a better way to 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 hold that token? And you, you talked about the infrastructure underlying underlying the current payment system and the, the payment rails, which I think is the jargon that people use for this. When I when I started looking at this a couple of years ago, I looked at I went to the BIS website and downloaded the read books uh, and, and had a look at them and I, it, what struck me was that from one country to, the, to another the payment system may be entirely different and as you pointed out even neighboring countries may have entirely different infrastructures how easy is it going to be to move from where we are now to something that's you know more seamless and or frictionless as you put it um well look pay, payments is payments is, payments is complex and i think we need to almost define the problem precisely um uh, um you know are we dealing with in-market payments or cross-border payments, and 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 if you like, you know, one thing that we all, we all know is that the mega trend of payments is low-value regular payments are going from offline to online, and in many cases, the cross-border payment systems were designed for large-value infrequent transactions, and so naturally, they're a bit expensive for what we need to do. So I think there's a there's a lot of good innovations uh, uh, coming through, saying, well, look, um, should we go um, uh, point to point? Almost like sort of the airline revolution of you know twenty odd years ago, um, to try and make it cheaper and more 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 effective. Um, I, I I suspect that um, uh, you know a lot of the real innovation will be within a given market. I mean, let's look at China. We now have um, what three quarters of a trillion people using Alipay. Uh, the the network effects and the efficiencies on that platform are extraordinary, which also allows them to reinvest in the tech stack. Get an ever better platform, you know. For instance, if you go to New York and using Alipay, and um, you know what you'd say in, in jargon would be a falcon would appear. You know, we well, you know how is that transaction is out of your normal pattern. So is this you? Um, if you use Alipay, they'll take a photo of your face, but not just one photo. You have, you have to smile or grim at it just to make sure it's you rather than you putting another picture in front of it. That use of machine learning and um, the uh, the platform to be. Uh, trusted, frictionless, fraudless, is is incredibly uh, valuable. Now, what I don't know is it, to set that network up. It required real intensity because, if we think about the last thirty years, there aren't that many new payment networks set up from scratch. 
it's really tough and really heavy lifting. And the success stories like Alipay, uh, like uh, WeChat Pay, to be honest, like um, even like PayPal, have normally come from piggybacking on someone else's network. Uh, and then two, actually basically um, using incentives to pump prime the systems. Such in the Chinese case, um, the, uh, to get, let's say, adoption by taxi drivers, they gave uh, the taxi driver a premium for using it and gave you a, a discount for your first 10 rides. How we build a new payment network from scratch is incredibly difficult. And I think maybe where um, uh, the audacity of Libra was that they could do it everywhere at all times, which, let's be honest, I think we're naturally very uh, sceptical about. It sounded though as though that Libra and Facebook behind Libra understood very well the, the, the network effects that the Chinese uh, firms have been enjoying, or have already built, uh, and they, they wanted to compete with that because they can see the benefits of having that, that scale. Uh, is this something that regulators maybe should be encouraging if they want to allow competition to the Chinese companies? Well, it's, so let me, let's, let's divide this up, up into two. I mean, let's be clear, uh, uh, in my view, and I've, I've written about this, is that Libra's coming a little bit late to the party. Um, you, know, um, um, you know, Facebook has a, a payments wallet in the States and actually has just rebranded it, relaunched it um, yeah. a, a recently. But then the only other market where they've got payments up and running is in India, where they've got about a million clients in beta testing, but it's stuck in beta testing. Via WhatsApp. Exactly, yeah. via WhatsApp. Yeah. So um, actually, you know, one lesson for us is that the um, American tech giants are a long, long way behind. Yeah. And that's whether it's Uber, whether it's Google, whether it's Amazon, uh, each of them trying to launch their own wallets uh, requires real density of networks in their home countries. And that's something where, so in a way, the Libra one, I'm not sure how do you build cross-border density is quite difficult. So if you think about some of the other payment firms, they've gone for the major conduct, major routes. Yeah. And I think that's something there. No, um, but your question was much broader about, um, you know, w w um, is there a sort of trade war, trade tension with the Chinese? I'm not so convinced by that argument personally. I mean, I know that it's very fashionable to say there are tech wars. Um, and I think in certain spaces, as Huawei's shown, there clearly are um, real rivalries ongoing. But payments is, is very domestic. And so it's less obvious to me that you know that these systems will come over and take over as na international standards. You know? But if the Chinese central bank is introducing a digital version of the renminbi, which most people report that they are doing, we don't mm. know the launch date yet, isn't there a possibility that this could then be some kind of new global, what could in theory become a new global reserve currency if people around the world decided they wanted to use it? So I think we need to be very careful about talking about uh, that the, the technology of how a currency is delivered versus whether the status as a sort of store of value. And I know I realize that we should get, we're getting back here to sort of 101 economics, but um, uh, the reason the dollar is used so widely is that it is the standard unit of exchange across borders for most, for most of Asia, but also for Latin America, and quite frankly, between US and Europe. And so depending on the uh, type of transaction, between sort of half and 80% of all cross-border transactions are in dollars. The reserve status is also something about, do you trust that the currency is not going to be impaired in value? I mean, the history of currencies, which you've, you know, you've, you've, you've looked at you know, far more than I have, is that people debase their currencies. So if you want to be a reserve currency, you need to be someone who doesn't consistently debase, or at least you're debasing slower than other people are debasing theirs. Mm. And in an environment where we've got negative rates in 
you know, uh, a quarter of the world, you know, they're, they're clearly debasing their currencies faster than the dollar is. So whether the renminbi ends up being a reserve currency, for me, is a very different topic than do they happen to deliver it through one sort of digital token versus another sort of digital token. For me, that's much more about efficiency of the underlying system. How are digital currencies and mobile payments technology changing the way we think about money? Oh, this is a great question. This is something that sort of vexed me when I was doing the work for the uh, Bank of England. Um, uh, I mean, there's a couple of things. So um, one is um, control. I think it's a really interesting topic here, which is that, you know, we all need, in our financial life, we need to keep control of what we do because we're all, we're all um, at risk of overspending and being suckered into our, the consumer economy. And so one risk is that as the payment becomes ever more invisible, does, is there that kind of safety check? Oh, can I afford it? Have I got it in my balance? Now, obviously, with, through machine learning, you can sort of affect that. But, the, but, but that, that, that piece of control, I think, is one really interesting aspect. I think second is clearly the data. You know, um, firms can find out far more about what you're doing. As, and, and then that really bridges in, and, and they can obviously use it to their commercial advantage. And there's a whole series of antitrust issues. The third, though, and I'm sorry I'm being quite commercial about this, is privacy. You know, um, every transaction you undertake will be known about. And one of the kind of more libertarian streaks about the future of money is, you know, why isn't it anonymous? And I think this, this is one of the big challenges which central banks wrestle with, which is today, cash can be anonymous, but digital, digital money isn't. And what are the kind of societal values that you have? And I think this is where we've got different paradigms around the world. Most Anglo-Saxon economies savour the privacy, but obviously then hit into roadblocks when you obviously want to you know, crush terrorist and illegal and uh, activities. Uh, but there are other jurisdictions which maybe have a different concept of what is appropriate privacy between the state and the individual. And, and that's a tension between bearer money that doesn't have any uh, any feature identifying the, the owner and, and money that's registered to some particular owner has always been there, hasn't it? It's not, it's not a new, this is not a new tension. No, that's right. And, and I think this is what's really interesting. If you certainly talk to one or two of the central bankers, you could say over history, we've, we've been through these, you know, history, history rhymes. Um, but you know, when we go back down to it, you know, there are so many intriguing things about a, uh, a you know, a, um, a tokenized uh, world. Uh, but when you go come down to the the basic principles that let's say the libertarian stroke anarchist movement in, in with a, a, a faction of the blockchain movement is, it's permissionless, it's uh, got crowd trusted, it's anonymous. Um, these are attributes which are anathema to the yes. average central banker or, 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 or secretary of state. And so I think that challenge means um, if we do see blockchain adopted, it's not going to be uh, of the libertarian streak and, and certainly of the work of what's, what's in the public domain around the Chinese exp uh, uh, um, experimentation is that the token may use the cryptography of a blockchain, but that's basically it. Everything else will be centralised and in a, in a classic sort of two-tier system. Uh, how well aligned are the views of the central banks on the introduction of digi digital currencies and the banks? Because the banks are under a lot of pressure from the fintech firms who are already dominating in, in payments. Uh, the central banks have been quite reticent about introducing digital versions of their own national currencies. Where does that leave the banks, in, 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 in theory, in the middle between the two uh, camps? Well, so you start off saying, what's the, for the, well, for the, amongst the central bankers, there is no one view. It's, it is very wide. And I think that... 
Um, as you alluded to in terms of how does technology change the way we think about money, there are some very deep questions about the structure of the financial system, the regulation thereof. And if I sort of put it into one sort of bumper sticker, historically, financial stuff has happened within financial firms, which then get regulated by the state. Now, we go through periods of booms and busts where we, we regulate poorly, but effectively, it's a bank or an insurance company yeah. or a payment company. The, the risk here is that a lot of financial activities are no longer going to happen through firms which get regulated like a bank or a payment company. And that is, is a really deep question. And the, the other piece is, of course, you know, m the, the classic structure of almost every economy is of a two-tier system where the central bank deals in a wholesale fashion with banks or with, with grown-ups, which then pass it on to the society. The risk of disintermediating that is one which it, they are understandably very, very cautious about because, you know, what history taught us... Well, two, there, I think the only law... I'm think of about economic history is of unintended consequences. And therefore you have to be really thoughtful about, you know, radically changing and dismembering the banking system and what that does then to monetary policy and, and what have you. So, the, and, and it seems that there a number of central bankers are very aware of the risks of, of, uh, of changing the system's structure in that way. I think that's right. And so, you know, um, you know a few weeks ago, uh, Governor Brainyard gave a good speech about the Fed. Uh, Obviously, the, the Swedes have been very thoughtful about this. But if I come back down to that kind of that four-way distinction of token, rails, uh, wallet, and, uh, and then the data, um, you know, what was interesting about, say, the Chinese approach is it's just about the token. Now, it may in turn be about other layers. The Swedes' initial approach was to actually also include the wallet and the rails. So, for instance, their pro initial proposal was to give every Swedish um, household, uh, individual, sorry, um, uh, a bank account. Well, that really would disintermediate the banks, yep. and I think that's something which probably, you know, uh, like like with all experimentation, one needs to experiment and then pivot if it doesn't work. I, I would expect a fairly radical pivot from that model from from the Swedes. Let's talk about um, uh, wallets. Um, we, we're seeing a lot of uh, competition here and innovation from the technology providers, from the providers of mobile phones, from the social media giants. Where do you think that market is heading? Oh, uh, I mean, look, look, payments is the uh, is the battleground for you know to be the uh, the gateway into the online world, and uh, you know what was really striking to me over the last two years doing this work is whether it's the banks, whether it's the payments firms, whether it's big tech, whether it's fintech, and quite frankly, even the telco companies, everyone wants to be close to customers and own the data, and you know in some cases it's because they want to be a toll road, and they want to be the new toll road and and pick off you know the toll. In some cases, it's genuinely because there is an added value. So, for instance, you, I could argue that with um, um, Apple Pay, um, at one level it might look like a toll, but if through biometric authentication and through also machine learning of understanding your own behaviours and therefore is it you using your phone, actually that, that double authentication probably should reduce fraud, which then fraud would then reduce friction in the system. So there are some, so there are some genuine innovations here which are also... Um, you know, making the system better, and I think we should we should be we, we should generally be encouraging that. But this battle for wallets is very hot, and I think what's fascinating for me is in Europe there are a number of markets where the banks have actually grasped the nettle and have got wallets going. Um, Holland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden are probably the four standouts, and then there are other markets where, quite frankly, it's the brand new firms 
who really romped home. So obviously in China, Alipay, WeChat Pay, approximately have 90% of all of mobile payments. Um, India, Paytm has got well over 300 million clients. And in some ways, the really interesting thing is actually how few clients some of the big tech firms have got. I mean, Amazon Pay is probably the most successful, but you know, but Google Pay is successful in a couple of markets, but not that many. And it actually, one interesting thing for you, Paul, is is actually how little of this data is publicly available. It's very difficult to get accurate numbers of the size of wallets by market. And I think that in itself oh, tells you probably actually maybe some of the big tech ventures have not worked out as well as they'd hoped. And, and turning to data, uh, the data relating to payments obviously has huge commercial value. And if you ally it to the uh, the, the Silicon Valley advertising model, it, it, it would give uh, someone who's dominant in that area a huge competitive advantage. Mm. So what can we do to ensure that the data on our financial transactions is something that we as individuals control rather than it being kind of sucked up and monopolized by a big uh, commercial entity? Well, so can I sort of, ch sort of challenge the, the, the question first, which is, um, let me give you an example where actually uh, that data can be harnessed for the good of the customer. So if you take small businesses, which you know, small business is represent about 65% of the value of payments according to the latest McKinsey uh, uh, study. Um, uh, companies, whether it's Stripe, Visa, uh, uh, MasterCard and so forth, are increasingly um, aggregating the data, looking for interesting patterns, and then reselling that data back to the businesses. If you're a small business trying to sell in the online world, are you better spending advertising dollars uh, on, on List or on Amazon or on eBay or which, which platform and, and how best could you come to market? Actually, if payment data can help small businesses target their dollars and pounds uh, better, actually that's a fantastic value add. So I think there are ways actually in this And for the consumer as well, the consumer would benefit by seeing ads that are better suited for what he or she wants to see. Hopefully, I mean, yeah. I'm sure we've, we've had many times where we've, we've been told like, I, you know, you, you've searched search for a washing for machine yeah. and then for the next, yeah. the next year you get washing machine ads, which aren't yeah. really interesting. Yeah. So um, I think it could definitely work your favor. No, but where you're right though is, is what happens when things go wrong. So uh, one, you know, payment, the financial world, you know, is, is you know, counterintuitively held to incredibly high standards on data. And so um, will we hold the data companies to the same level? And in particular, around the loss of data. It's pretty rare for, uh, uh, it does happen, but it's pretty rare for a bank or payment firm to lose at scale a huge amount of client data. But there are numerous examples where data has been lost for payment firms, airlines, oh, sorry, I apologize, airlines uh, are, are big tech firms. Yeah. So can we hold them to really high standards and what happens when things go wrong? And number two, when things go wrong, who's on the hook? You know, um, is there just a rebound risk and it goes all the way back into the financial sector? And I think one of the things I've written about and spent some time on when I was at the bank was looking at open banking, open finance. At one level, this is a really cool idea. How can customers' data work on their behalf but actually, at the moment, it really has struggled to take off in the UK because we haven't got the liability model right. And therefore, understandably, businesses are very uh, 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 careful about how the data is shared yeah. and make it uh, make as much friction as possible uh, to try and reduce that liability. Mm -hmm. So I think um, the, the, the liability and the control of data, I think, is going to be a huge theme for the years ahead. Yeah. What one... Um chart struck me in, in the future of finance report you produced when at the Bank of England, it was the, 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 the variety or, or, or the dispersion in standards between different countries' identity systems. Mm. And uh, some, have got, some countries have got very advanced uh, high-tech uh, 
digital ID schemes, others are lagging behind. So India is, I think, an example of one that's very got, got uh, very high levels of coverage. The UK probably is a, a laggard in the area. What's how important is a, 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 a thorough digital ID scheme for uh, for payments and for, for money? Uh, so look, payments are inextricably linked with identity, full stop. And uh, obviously part of the reason why um, the banking system has been you know, fined so many times is not knowing its customers well enough. And then, so at the, at the moment now, most banks have pretty good standards for knowing their customers, but it's less clear whether maybe some of these new players do. Um, I think I'd divide the problem to, uh, into a couple of, di- I mean, when you really dig deep into identification, there's different levels like, you know, are you are who you say you are, the authentication, the validation and so forth. So that A, identity ends up being a really complicated process. Um, two, there is huge value in standards. And so particularly around companies, having a single unique number to know who you are and to get to share that was very valuable to try and um, authenticate and ensure that you're not laundering money or you're a baddie. So I think the standards piece is an area where public policy can play a really important role. When then come down to then issuing the numbers, um, I, my, my view is that for companies, uh, it, this can be done by the private sector, although it would help if we had the standards. In most cases, these sort of um, uh, the companies' houses, the sort of the, the, the providers of numbers, are relatively stale and don't really authenticate themselves. And so, actually, tax numbers are a better use, as India has done, and, and publicly get that there. When it comes down to retail, you need the state involved. It's very difficult to see how you get a nationwide um, digital um, ID if the state at one level or another is not involved. Now that could either be directly issuing the identification like in India, or it could be indirectly. So most people, let's say in the UK or or in America, would use their social security number or their passport, or in most cases actually their driving license. And actually if you ask some of the banks, the number one source of fraud is actually provisional driving licenses, because actually it's rather easy to get it. And so actually, you know, having um, a, a piece of government ID is central. And I, I mean, I think there's a really interesting debate that in an online world, a digital ID will become a right for a citizen. And for those countries who don't actually keep up with the times, actually will be doing a disservice to those members of society who are slightly left behind and, and less engaged. And people might move virtually to, to other places where they can get that digital ID if it gives them some benefits. Possibly, possibly. I still think at the end of the day, laws of the land will mean that for individuals, your national ID will be the dominant with the Trump card, uh, but for companies, absolutely for companies, it can be uh, it could be a cross-border identification. What did you find most interesting and most challenging in the future finance project you did for the Bank of England? Oh my goodness! Uh, so uh, well, I mean, the, 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 I think you know, um, you know, Mark Carney has done an extraordinary amount of good to uh, shape the international debate around sustainable finance, around payments, around uh, standards, and obviously around making sure that. At the end of the day, the central bank is working for the good of society. Um, the challenge I was set was that um, uh, was 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 twofold. One was it was so broad, you know, that we were dealing from payments to identification. A topic we haven't spoken about today is is regtech. How can we make sure that um, the central bank is doing a brilliant job of regulating financial firms? The, you know, um, one of the statistics I sort of um, uh, uh, come across was. Uh, the average regulator is receiving the equivalent amount of data of twice the complete works of Shakespeare every week. Well, there's no way that any one individual can interrogate that. You need to harness data science, machine learning, 
to look for amber flags, red flags, and then have the smart people then interrogate the flags rather than do the basic reading. And so I think there are, so one was the breadth of the challenge. And the second was to try and actually then, when you work out, then go deep enough to actually make a recommendation and work with the bank that something was truly actionable. And obviously at the end of the day, in a piece of work like uh, the Future of Finance, we made a series of recommendations. The bank is now taking forward 18 of them. And uh, obviously they're now scrubbing down and fact checking and working through um, how each and every one can be implemented at scale with appropriate resource and an appropriate timeline. Uh, but it, it was the kind of the breadth and the depth at the same time made it probably, you know, intellectually and, and, and physically quite challenging. Hugh, thank you very much for your time. It's been a very interesting chat. Pleasure. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to this New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. You can support New Money Review by visiting patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, forward slash New Money Review, and becoming a patron of the site. Your support will help us cover this fast-growing area of finance independently and in depth. You can also support us in cryptocurrency. Our wallet addresses for Bitcoin, Ether, and Litecoin are published on the homepage of our website in the right margin.